Well, friends, listening family, we have some incredible theology today on Walk in Truth. We're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 19. It is some of the grandest theology in all the Bible. And it is about the identity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. Some groups out there twist these scriptures, but this section emphatically declares that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is God. Stay tuned to Walk in Truth. You're listening to the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Father, we are grateful to be together on this Sunday morning. We're grateful to be able to open the Word of God and know it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts right to the heart of the matter. And that's really what we need, Lord. We need the light of the word to show us who you are and who we are in Jesus Christ. There's been an ongoing attack for the last 2,000 years on the person of Christ, who he is, whether or not he is God. And Lord, the Bible emphatically answers this question, and I pray that as we look at this most majestic text on the identity, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that you will show us who you are. And it will cause us even to marvel more because this God who made everything, the sustainer of the universe, the creator, the image of the invisible God came to save us. And it is just so awesome to know this, Lord. And we pray that you will bless our time together. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of your word. May you be glorified this morning. Draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, with holding your place in Colossians 1, go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let's take a look at a conflict that Jesus often seemed to be in with the Jewish religious leadership. John chapter 8. They're going back and forth, but to cut to the heart of the matter, look at verse 21 of John 8. Jesus said, therefore, again to them, John 8, 21, I go away and you shall seek me. And shall die in your sins, where I'm going you cannot come, John 8, 22. Therefore the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going you cannot come. And he was saying, verse 23, saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, For unless you believe that I am, you'll notice that he is often italicized. It literally just says in the original, I am, which is the name that the the Lord gave to Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I say sent me to the children of Israel? And God says, I am that I am. Jesus appeals to that name. He says, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. What's at stake in the debate of the person of Christ? Does it really matter if you're a little bit off in regard to who he is and his claims? It does matter. In fact, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am the voice of the burning bush, that I am God Almighty, you will die in your sins. That's a pretty radical statement. And so they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what I've been saying to you from the beginning. From the beginning, Jesus was making a claim. He was making the claim both by his verbal discourses or his sermons and by his actions. He had the power to forgive sins, the power to heal diseases, the power to raise the dead. 
And he was saying to the Jews, and by the way, the Jews, this Jewish leadership knew who he was. He told a parable. The parable made it clear that they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. They knew who he was, but they were afraid of his power because of their positions of authority. Authority was a big issue when Jesus was on the planet. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, a little bit to your right. The Apostle Paul picks up the theme of the identity of Jesus Christ and he says these words to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was being exposed to some Gnostic ideas, just like the people of Colossae, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And Paul spoke of the fear that he had for them. He said, I am afraid, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes, 2 Corinthians eleven four, and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Some versions say, I'm afraid that you might put up with this. There is another Jesus, 2 Corinthians eleven uh, four. There's a different spirit and a different gospel. Now, don't let this shock you. Jesus was a very common name in the first century. So Jesus Christ as a name, Jesus as a name is an important name, but there were many people named Jesus in the first century. You have to have the right Jesus to be saved. You have to believe the right thing about him. There is another Jesus and there's another gospel. There's a Jesus in just about every world religion that you can think of. There's a Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, a Jesus in Mormonism, a Jesus in Islam, a Jesus in witchcraft, by the way. Everybody has their version of Jesus. But Jesus said, here's what's at stake. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, that's a lot that's at stake. So that's why we have to pay close attention to these kinds of passages. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Colossian church. And there's a concern that's been expressed to him about this church. He's never met them before, but he's been praying for them. And as he prays for them, just go back and revisit the prayer for a second. He says in verse 9, Colossians 1, this, For this reason, since the day we heard of your faith in Jesus, is the context, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word knowledge there is epinosis. If you look up the word in Greek, it actually is a word that speaks of precision or precise knowledge. Paul is praying for the church that they would have precise knowledge. About what? About the person of Jesus Christ. About who it is that saves them. This is an area where you do need to have some precision. Now, there are some people that are just flat out ignorant. They've grown up in certain systems. They've not been exposed to certain scriptures. I'm not talking about people who are ignorant and are growing. Maybe they don't have the full picture of Christ yet. You may be in that situation this morning. But there are people who know the truth and still deny the truth. And those are people that would be considered heretics. And those people have been dealt with pretty severely in the history of the church, been booted out of the church for preaching a false gospel and preaching a lie about Jesus Christ. So Paul prays for their knowledge. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will, notice, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding or insight. Now, if you continue to look at the prayer for a second, 
Go back, go uh, down to verse 12. It says, he's giving thanks to the Father as Paul prays for them, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom or in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's in this Christ that we have redemption, so we have to have the right Christ to make sure that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven. I was listening to a call-in show this last week, and a gal called in, and she said, uh, you know, I'm a little concerned. I come from a culture where there's all these gods and, and so forth, and she says, I've become a Christian, and I've gone into the Christian church, but I hear a lot of worship directed towards Jesus, but not really towards the Father. And she said, I think that that might hurt the Father's heart or hurt his feelings. All this attention is paid to Jesus and not to the Father. What do you think of such a thing? And the response of those who were answering the question said, actually, it glorifies the Father to worship the Son. In Hebrews 1, he said, let all the angels of God, what? Worship him. That's Hebrews 1, right in uh, verses 5 through about 8. Let all the angels of God worship him. The Father is glorified when the Son is worshiped. He's given all authority and all judgment to the Son. The Father and Son are one, so when the Son is worshiped and glorified, the Father is as well. This is where we get into the, the high doctrine of the Trinity, but when you are worshiping the Son, you are worshiping the Father because God is one. And so they said this is okay because this is what the Father has done. Now sometimes people get the idea that the Father is some vengeful God of the Old Testament and Jesus to appease his Father's wrath said, Father, don't judge them. I'll take care of it. I'll die for them. But that's not accurate either. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who gave his son? The Father gave his son. The Father so loved you that he was willing to give his son. And he wants you to understand who his son is. And he wants you to understand why he came for you and for me. So this is what might be called some of the highest Christological passage or one of the highest Christological passages in the Bible. That just means the study of Christ. And here's what it says. Verse 15, chapter 1. There are many people, Colossians 1.15, who believe that verses 15 through 20 are an ancient hymn of the church. There were ancient creedal statements that were going around the church before they were often written down. A little bit of a debate there, but some believe 15 through 20 is an ancient hymn uh, sung by the church and spoken by the church. It says, and he, in context, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the first thing that you'll see is a phrase, he is. Uh, this phrase is used, I think, in verses 17 and 18. It's, it's telling you about the identity of Jesus Christ. This is what he is. What is he? He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in Greek is a Greek word called icon, E-I-K-O-N, if you're interested in taking a note on it. It is where we get our English word icon, I-C-O-N, Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Now, this verse says that God is invisible. What does that mean? It means that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
God is essentially spirit, John 4, 24. That's what Jesus said of his father. In Luke 24, Jesus says, A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. But first, what are you wrestling with in your life? In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, and against the spiritual forces of wickedness. It's no secret the Christian life is difficult, but you can take comfort in knowing you are not alone. In Pastor Michael Lance's book, Suit Up, he shows you a revealing look at God's armor and how the Lord will equip you to face the world. You'll learn about the nature of the battle, who the real enemy is, and God's provision to be victorious. Learn about how each piece equips you for spiritual battle when you get your copy of Suit Up today on walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. Now the first thing that you'll see is a phrase, he is. Uh, this phrase is used, I think, in verses 17 and 18. It's, it's telling you about the identity of Jesus Christ. This is what he is. What is he? He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image in Greek is a Greek word called icon, E-I-K-O-N, if you're interested in taking a note on it. It is where we get our English word icon, I-C-O-N. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Now, this verse says that God is invisible. What does that mean? It means that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is essentially spirit, John 4, 24. That's what Jesus said of his father. In Luke 24, Jesus says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. God, uh, who appeared to Moses on the mount, Moses said, show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. And the Lord said to Moses, no one can see me and live. You cannot see my face and live. God can manifest his glory, but God is essentially spirit. Non-corporeal is what theologians call it. Without a body, he is essentially spirit. So Jesus has become, this is what the Greek word icon means, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. You might want to write that down. This is what the word icon means. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He has come to communicate God to us. The disciple said, Lord, show us the Father and it would suffice for us. Show us a theophany, kind of like Moses got. At least he got to see the back parts of your beauty. And Jesus said, have you been so long with me, Philip, that you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has what? Seeing the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am the icon of God. I am the visible manifestation of the invisible God. I am God, if I can put it this way, in a bod. Yes. Okay? If you want to rhyme, if, if rhymes really help you. When Jesus, when the annunciation of Jesus' birth came to Joseph and he was being assured that he could marry Mary, that it would be okay, he said, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, Matthew 1.23, quoting from Isaiah, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's what Jesus is. He is fully God. 
And the word icon speaks of both representation and manifestation. The essential word in Greek, if you can, re- you can read a bunch of Greek lexicons, dictionaries on it, the essential meaning of the word icon is representation and manifestation. God became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. And so he is the image of the invisible God. He came to reveal God to us. He's not simply just a portrait of God. He is God. He has the personal characteristics and distinguishing marks of God. One writer says there's a painting in a palace in Rome by René. It is painted into the ceiling of the dome over 100 feet high. To stand at the floor level and look upward, the painting seems to be surrounded by a fog which leaves its contents unclear. But in the center of the great dome room is a huge mirror, which in its reflection picks up the picture. By looking into the mirror, you can see the picture with great clarity. Jesus Christ, born in a manger at Bethlehem, is the mirror of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins." Now, this is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. You might want to write down John 1.18. No, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him or has declared him. John 1.18, the word explained him or declared him is where we get the English word exegesis. Sometimes when I say exegesis, my wife says, would you please explain to the people what you mean by that? Here's what it means. When you exegete a passage, you bring out the meaning of the passage. You reveal the meaning or substance of the passage. A pastor is supposed to be good at exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis is to let the passage speak for itself, to bring forth what is there in substance. Eisegesis is to read something into the passage that's not there. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He explains the Lord. He explains the Father. He reveals him to us. So that when you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see the Father. You see the heart of the Father. You see what he's like. Now, Let's be clear, and this is some difficult sledding for our minds. Jesus is not the Father, though. There is a distinction between the Father and the Son. When Jesus prays to the Father, he is literally praying to another personality. That's where we get the Trinity. Within the triune God, there's three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is what the Bible is teaching us, that Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God to men so that we can know and we can understand who God is. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews affirms this truth, Hebrews 1, when he says these words. Hebrews 1.1. Hebrews 1.1. I'll give you a second to turn there. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus the son, verse 3, Hebrews 1, is the radiance of his glory. And what's your Bible say? The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. This word in Greek, exact representation, is character with a K in the middle instead of a C. It means an exact impression, a precise, precise reproduction, and Jesus is, you could say it this way, the exact impress of God. Although man is the icon of God, go back to uh, Colossians chapter one, man is made in the image of God. We see that in the book of Genesis and other places. Um, he, fall, he fell. And so Jesus Christ, you could say it this way, because he is both God and man, is the exact representation of God to us, and he is also a perfect man. We want to be careful here, but here's what we could say about this. Jesus Christ, as we watch him in the Gospels, is everything that man was supposed to be. Man was supposed to glorify God in all of his actions. He was supposed to have a direct connection with his maker. He was not to be separated by sin from God. And so we have to be careful here because Jesus did miracles and all of that because Jesus is God, but Jesus is everything that man is supposed to be as well, the perfect man and, of course, 100% God. I know that this is some hard stuff to get your mind around, but this is what the Bible teaches. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the firstborn there is a word called prototokos. <laughs> There's a big debate on how you say it. I've heard it say, say prototokos or prototokos, but there you go. So, firstborn. Now, here's what Jehovah's Witnesses have said. With all due respect to our Jehovah's Witness friends, they come to the door, and this is one of their pet texts. And they say, you see, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn, so he must be the first one born. And in their literature, they compare this word firstborn. If, if it's said that there's the firstborn of Pharaoh, then he's the first one born, right? Wrong. Because in Jewish uh, life and also in the Greek world, the firstborn often was not the first one born. Jacob took precedence over Esau. Was he the firstborn? No. Isaac took precedence over Ishmael. Was he the firstborn? No. The firstborn was the one that was given the place of rank or preeminence or superiority. The firstborn got a double portion. If Jesus Christ is literally the firstborn, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would like us to think, and here's what they've done, this is a little bit from history, they've picked up what's called the Arian heresy. There was a man way back in church history called Arius of Alexandria, and he taught that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of God. He was perhaps a high-ranking angel. Uh, he was a great one, maybe even a lesser God with a small g, but he was simply created. He was a great creation, but he was created. Arius, for that teaching, got kicked out of the church. The Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1800s picked up this teaching, and this is one of the texts that they, they go with. They say that Jesus, somewhere back before the physical creation was made, was the first and greatest creation of God. How does that reflect the word firstborn, though? I mean, if you're going to take firstborn literally, wouldn't that mean that Jesus would have to have been born somewhere way back when? I'm not talking about Jesus being born to Mary in the manger. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somewhere way back in the distant past, even before creation uh, occurred. 
Was he literally born then? No, he wasn't. And so that's not even what the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying. So what does the word firstborn mean? Well, in their book, Reasoning from the Scriptures, the Watchtower Society argues that the word firstborn indicates that Jesus is the eldest in Jehovah's family of sons. Indeed, the book says the term firstborn occurs over 30 times in the Bible, and in every case that it is applied to living creatures, the firstborn is part of a larger group, just as the firstborn of Pharaoh refers to the first one born to Pharaoh. So is Jesus the firstborn uh, or created by Jehovah, they say. In the book, The Greatest Man Who Ever Lived, a Jehovah's Witness book, we read, Jesus was a very special person because he was created by God before all other things. Now this is interesting because if you read the text closely, Colossians calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, not the firstborn of Jehovah. Listen to this argument. Thus, the JW argument makes no logical sense. If we are to draw a direct parallel between the firstborn of Pharaoh and the firstborn of all creation, then we must conclude that creation parented Jesus. But indeed, this is the reverse of what actually happened as the context of the passage clearly demonstrates. For in the very next verse, we find that, that Christ parented creation, not creation parenting Jesus. True story and a very powerful one, just like in the book of Hebrews when the author is trying to make the people understand, Jesus is above the angels. He is the Lord God. He is the creator. And of course, he's above his creation. If you have any thoughts on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. Love to hear how Walk in Truth is being a blessing to you or to your family or both. Please contact us by mail or email. You can get the contact information at walkintruth.com. Be sure to listen in again next time as we continue in the book of Colossians chapter 1, learning more about the incredible preeminence of Jesus Christ. Until then, God bless you. Thanks for praying for us. We'll be praying for you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.